available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to Outlook being recorded on Wednesday the 15th of November and I'm Nigel Hewin. And uh, in this edition, what are we looking at? Well, firstly, Margaret's going to see what's been happening about the National Westminster Bank in Broadgate, the, one of the architectural gems of the city, of course. Uh, we all know about uh, the internet and things like that, but the history of that and how it's developed, uh, she has been looking at from an article in the Sunday Times. You may have noticed also that the radio now is being changed with BBC having some funny ideas about, about uh, the young audience they want. And so Sue's got an article about Zoom radio and the plethora of new digital stations that's come, come to being. Some months ago also, you may remember that David uh, had a chat with Jessica, who was a former shepherdess. Well, he's found her again, and he's having yet another chat with her. And then we're going to end this programme with uh, Arundel Tomb, a poem from Philip Larkin. But of course, before we start all that, uh, we've got your uh, post bag, we've got sport, we've got the report from the centre, and we're going to start off with this week's news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. A plea, a plea has been made for cash, winter clothes and hygiene products as Coventry rallies round the victims of the tragic earthquake that struck Syria and Turkey. And one resident of the city who was born in Turkey has described how his hometown has been wiped from the map in the aftermath of the earthquake, which has claimed thousands of lives. Dr. Hussein Hakan Ilarim, who's 41, was born in Turkey, but resides in Coventry, and has been a member of the Coventry Education and Cultural Centre since 2016. The Cultural Centre has 200 boxes of clothes and hygiene products to donate to the countries in need, but now have to stop due to issues with cargo. Dr. Ilarim said he started shaking when he first heard the news about the earthquake, and immediately started to call friends and family to check they were safe. As well as the hundreds of fatalities, tens of thousands of people have been injured in Turkey alone. The situation in northern Syria has been described as absolutely catastrophic by the country's civil defence group, the White Helmets. After the initial shock, Dr. Ilarim sprung into action, and started thinking about how he could support the people that were around him. He said that things naturally started happening, and everyone gathered round to see how they could help. I would encourage people to donate winter clothes and hygiene products, but the most important thing is the money, as people need heaters and tents, but we cannot send this from the UK due to logistics. Coventry's much-loved Albany Theatre is celebrating 10 years of record-breaking ticket sales and incredible shows in the city. Albany Theatre, located on the edge of the Coventry City Centre, sadly closed down in 2008 before again reopening in 2013. Since then, the theatre has transformed into an interactive space with galore of exciting performers over the years and have since launched the youth theatre and growth of creative outreach in city schools and the community. They've also started an in-house production company, Albany Productions, creating successful theatre productions such as A Christmas Carol. 
The theatre has seen partnerships flourish with local and national performers and promoters, and has also honed 20 interns and apprentices launching careers in the arts, along with hundreds of volunteers who have assisted with front-of-house duties and technical theatre production. The city venue has also been crowned as a finalist in the 2023 West Midlands Tourism Awards in their Resilience and Innovation category. The theatre's current redevelopment is being funded by grants associated with the City of Culture Programme and the City Council, and will incorporate additional ground floor sections of the former college building and the courtyard. There will be a new studio theatre, two further studios, a cafe and a larger foyer area, volunteer room, extra green rooms and new toilet facilities, including a changing facility. After its closure in 2008, the Butts Theatre Charitable Trust was established and set about bringing the theatre building back to life. From June 2012, a small army of volunteers, many who had been involved in the campaign to save the theatre, planned and carried out repairs and developments. An estimated £100,000 of time and donated materials, supported by res re uh, residual grant funding of around 50000 from Coventry City Council, led to a formal reopening of the auditorium in ten, in ten years ago in February 2013. An architectural historian says Coventry's St Mary's Guildhall is a Premier League building. Author, presenter and former curator Dr Jonathan Foyle made the comment after speaking at an event to mark the 700-year-old building's restoration and reopening. The soiree took place in the historic Guildhall and was attended by Coventry councillors, council officers and others involved in the multi-million pound heritage project. In a keynote speech, Dr Foyle praised the building as more than nationally important and said it would be visited by generations to come. Thirteen years ago, Dr Foyle visited the city to abseil between its cathedrals for a BBC Two series on climbing historic buildings. He then came back to give a talk to the Coventry Society, in which he urged the city to make more of its heritage. To me, Coventry undersells itself. It needs to promote itself, he said back then. What strikes me most about Coventry is that its heritage in the 15th century is absolutely incredible. There are things in Coventry that you won't see anywhere else in Britain. Coventry City of Culture Trust has held talks with administrators amidst a difficult financial position and ongoing cash flow issues. The Trust is currently overseeing a three-year legacy programme in Coventry following the 2021 City of Culture year, but accounts recorded in March 2022 for the end of the financial year showed a funding shortfall of around £1.5 million. A council spokesman said the authority was concerned by the situation, adding it was in discussion with the Trust and its partners as it sought solutions to the financial challenges to minimise the impact to deliver the legacy the city needed. The Trust will be working on projects such as its first legacy commission, Cozy Creative, which continues this Friday, as well as the life and work of Frida Kahlo exhibition in the Real, the Real Store. 
Paul Maddox from Coventry Action for Neighbourhoods said despite promises made on how the title would bring visitors and prosperity, any legacy from the City of Culture year was looking unlikely. Areas around the city centre like Bell Green, Wood End, Willenhall and many more failed to be excited or see anything of the City of Culture events. Councillor David Welsh said the City of Culture year had benefited the smaller arts and culture organisations around the city. He said, I know of organisations that say without the commissions of the Trust during the pandemic, they would have folded because they lost everything at the start of the lockdown. The most recent independent economic impact report states approximately £172.6 million has been secured as a result of being awarded the UK City of Culture title. That includes £48 million for the Cultural Capital Investment Fund, enabling the city to restore, improve or bring back into public use cultural assets, including St Mary's Guildhall, Coventry Cathedral, Trapers Hall, the Belgrade Theatre and the Daimler Powerhouse. He said, since Covid, so many people had uh, rediscovered the improved city centre with improvement works in the Upper Precinct, Smithford Way, Hartford Street and the Bullyard, totalling around £44 million. He was concerned by the Trust's plight and the fact it may not be able to deliver its legacy arts and culture programme, but felt the overall benefits of the year far outweighed any downside. Derelict flats dubbed an eyesore by Coventry residents could finally be knocked down this year. Jasmine Court in Stoke Aldermore has been neglected for several years, with neighbours complaining of smashed windows, fires and drinking. Coventry City Council has issued a demolition order for the block as part of its crackdown on empty buildings, a meeting heard last week. A council officer described the building as probably one of the worst-looking and most dangerous properties in Coventry and said it had been abandoned for a number of years. The order, made in September 2022 and still subject to an appeal, will come into force in mid-May this year, the local democracy reporting service understands. According to the council, the flat's previous owner went into liquidation and the land is currently subject to a sheet, effectively making it ownerless, so it is being held by the Crown. Back in 2017, residents of the building's awful appearance complained of the antisocial behaviour taking place. Coventry Council said then that it planned on putting secure fencing around the flats while working on a long-term solution. But in 2021, Fed Up Locals launched a petition asking the government to demolish or renovate the derelict block. Their appeal described the flats as a major health hazard and eyesore and claimed they had been derelict for more than six years at the time. However, it was rejected by the government on the grounds that neither it nor Parliament is directly responsible for the building, despite it being effectively owned by the Crown. Two years ago, Coventry Council announced their new strategy to crack down on eyesore empty homes in the city. The colourful 900-year history of one of the region's historic buildings is being brought to life as part of a research project. Coombe Abbey Hotel started life as a 12th century abbey, and the Grade 1 listed building is now a hotel operated by No Ordinary Hospitality Management. 
The company has commissioned Nigel Clues, a local property expert, to research the history of the site to, to draw its 900-year story together. Nigel said, Coombe Abbey has a special place in the hearts of local people. They have either visited the hotel for special occasions, spent time in the grounds, or visited events which take place there, but many are unaware of the incredible history of the place. Many books have been written on history of Coombe, and there is masses of information on every aspect of the property, from its history and various changes of ownership, right through to how water and electricity were supplied to the Abbey. I have worked in Coventry for more than 30 years and was, in my role with Coventry City Council, responsible for Coombe Abbey from a property point of view. But I have learnt so much from this project so far, and I have only really scratched the surface. The Abbey was founded in 1150 and passed through several ownerships following its dissolution in 1528. The Craven family owned Coombe Abbey for 300 years from 1620 to 1923 before the estate was split up and the abbey purchased by John Gray, a Coventry builder. He used Coombe as a family home and after the Second World War leased it to GEC as a hospital for postgraduate employees. Coventry City Council took ownership in the 1960s and the country park was opened in 1966 before the Abbey was restored and opened as Coombe Abbey Hotel in 1995. Aaron Ashmore used to love writing as a child and always had a creative spark, but it wasn't until 2017 that he unleashed his talent. The author, who was born and bred in Coventry, has now penned ten books based on his hometown to help younger audiences understand and celebrate the city. Aaron has worked on the books alongside his eight-year-old son, Oscar, and together they wrote a book called The Time-Travelling Coventry Taxi. The book looks at a Coventry which is different in the future. For every book that is released, Aaron donates a thousand books to schools in the city. Some of the schools have then given a copy to all of their classes and also put them in their libraries. And to keep up the working, some schools are also basing part of their curriculum around Aaron's books for the children to learn about the history of Coventry. The books cover a wide range of subjects such as events and sport, but Coventry is at the heart of all of them. Aaron said, I want to get people away from tablets and screens and do things with their families. I am trying to inspire people at a younger age to be proud of being from Coventry. I remember when I was at school, the books were just all about the Blitz. But I think there is much more to the city than just wartime Coventry. Aaron's son, Oscar, said how much he loved working on the book with his dad and loves what they have made. A Coventry man accused of preparing terrorist acts has appeared in court. Mohammed al-Barad, 26, was arrested at a property in Care Road last week. Detectives from Counter-Terrorism Policing West Midlands CTU were at the scene of, for a number of days and a blue tent was put up next to a garage. Al-Barad was later charged with engaging in conduct in preparation for terrorist acts between May the 19th, 2022 and January the 31st this year. 
He appeared at Westminster Magistrate Court on Tuesday last week via video link. He did not enter any plea or speak at all during the hearing, which lasted around 15 minutes. The charges say he engaged in contact in preparation for terrorist acts with the intention of assisting another to commit acts of terrorism and engaged in conduct in preparation for giving effect to your intention, contrary to the Terrorism Act 2006. Chief Magistrate Paul Goldspring remanded him into custody to appear at the Old Bailey this Friday. Three other people arrested at the property in Care Road, two men aged 18 and 57, and a 58-year-old woman were released without mm. charge. In last week's news, we reported on a fly tipper and now have an update. The Coventry fly tipper has been fined thanks to the detective efforts of a fast-thinking member of the public. A picture of a Ford Transit van, whose driver was seen dumping waste by a field in Wollstone, was passed to officers from Warwickshire Police's Operational Patrol Unit. The crystal clear image showed the driver blatantly offloading a load of rubbish into a farmer's field gateway, an OPU spokesperson said. The offending vehicle was then located near the registered keeper's address in Coventry. After further investigation by rural crime team officers, the driver has been identified and paid a visit by us, the spokesman said. Working side by side with the local authority, the driver was fined £400 and his vehicle crushed. Fly tipping continues to be a blight across the rural landscape within our county. We will continue to work closely with local authorities and landowners to apprehend those responsible. Fly tipping has become a huge problem in Coventry too. A nuisance fly tipping spot in Talents Road, Longford, has long been used as a dumping ground. Fly tipping is also said to have blighted Occupation Road in Stoke, where rats have been seen scurrying through rounds of rubbish. Sainsbury's has confirmed when one of its supermarkets will permanently shut in mm. Coventry. Shoppers can visit the store in Courthouse Green for the final time this Friday, the 17th of February. A spokesman said they are currently supporting staff and exploring opportunities for them to move to other roles within the company. A delivery driver for the supermarket chain previously said that he was told that there were opportunities available to stay at the company, but he would have to reapply as opposed to a direct transfer. Another employee said hundreds of people would be left out of work following the store closure. Lloyd's Pharmacy recently withdrew its services from hundreds of stores throughout the country, including Courthouse Green, with a total of 237 in-store pharmacies scheduled to shut later this year. Sainsbury struck a deal to sell its pharmacy business to Lloyd's Pharmacy in 2015 for £125 million. However, the pharmacy company confirmed it had cut its services after a strategic review in response to changing market conditions. A Sainsbury spokesman said, Last year we made the difficult decision to close our Courthouse Green Superstore. We understand this will be an unsettling time for those affected. We regularly review our property estate, and the decision to close the store is never taken lightly and is based on a range of factors. 
Customers can continue to shop with us at our nearby stores, including Coventry Superstore, Canley Superstore and Coventry Far Gosford Street Local. UK performers Harry Styles and Wetleg were runaway winners at the prestigious Brit Awards last Saturday night and are heading to Coventry this year as part of the former One Direction's Superstars Love on Tour. On the back of previous successes at the Grammy Awards ceremony, in which Harry and rock group Wet Leg both won big, tickets to see the two are in high demand. Styles' newest album, Harry's House, debuted at number one on the UK Albums Chart and has received multiple awards, most notably Album of the Year at the Grammys. Meanwhile, Wet Leg won Best Alternative Music Album a year earlier. Harry's tour consists of seven legs spread over the course of 22 months and started on September 4th, 2021 in Las Vegas and is set to finish in July in Italy. For his Coventry appearance, tickets are limited but you can still book your place at the Coventry Building Society Arena on Monday, May the 22nd and Tuesday, May the 23rd to see both Harry Styles and Wetleg. Harry is typically on stage for around two hours and is famed for his high-energy performances. After being postponed twice due to social restrictions at the height of the coronavirus pandemic, the star has well and truly taken advantage of the world reopening. Outlook News. So uh, that completes uh, this week's local news from Elaine and myself. Uh, and now, as always, we go on to all the announcements we've got. The myriad of announcements, the same as every other week, is writing up and writing down. Uh, it's now getting much lighter, much earlier. It's 7.23, and if we're lucky with a nice sunny day, it's not till 5.20 it disappears. So that's, that's your day getting longer. Uh, and to fill your day, Hugh is going to tell you what's happening here at the, at the centre. I'm, I'm quite prepared to make people's days even longer by, <laughs> by continuing with my, my little section here. Hello, everybody. Um, some of you will know that Ring and Ride Stroke On Demand, you know, has, has changed, and um, it's now it's now an entirely on-demand service. Um, we've had a number of people come who, who use the uh, service. Uh, in inverted commas to come to the centre and have had uh, quite a lot of difficulties with it. Um, so we're wanting to gauge people's experiences uh, and to get you to tell us what they are because we're thinking that we might actually uh, write to uh, Transport West Midlands or whoever it is who's running it these days um, and uh, uh, make a formal issue of it uh, because at the moment it seems that they're not really serving the needs of um, of disabled people particularly well, and that's not what the service is for. So questions like, uh, are they coming to your door? I mean, we have we've had some people who've uh, you know where the uh, drivers have absolutely refused to you know come close enough to people's uh, houses um, for them to be able to get to the bus uh, safely. Um, we've had people where they're not coming at the right time. Um, they give themselves half an hour leeway either way. Well, we had somebody here the other day whose group didn't finish till half past 
two, and um, they turned up at quarter past two, um, and were told, and we were told that they could only wait five minutes. So off they went, leaving somebody stranded. We've heard of other people who were stranded in town. Charming, you know, um, because you know because of that. So anyway, uh, if you've had um, experiences, good or bad, actually, let's say, um, with the new Ring and Ride Stroke on demand service, um, it would be good to let us know because so we'd like to like to. Uh, raise some of the issues with them. I had a very good trip uh, yesterday, uh, no, uh, Monday uh, it is, uh, now uh, to uh, the Open Doors group at St. James's Church in Tile Hill. Uh, gave them a good long talk for, a uh, good long talking to, I was going to say, <laughs> uh, for an hour about everything that we do here. So it was lovely to see them. Um, and thank you to Carol Bloxham for arranging that. Um, yeah, maybe we'll get some more people signing up for, for the groups. Actually, we, we, I've had about three people sign up for groups this week so far. So we're all, all, all good. Now, we are... I just, there's a note of congratulation here, actually. Amy Clonell. Um who unfortunately um, has, has just caught a little bit of COVID at the moment, but some of you will know, we've talked about it before on here, that she wrote a book called uh, Renaissance, which is a, a, her poetry and, and various other things, um, and uh, self-published, but she's now got it stocked in Waterstones. So Good congratulations her. to her excellent. on that. That, well is a, that is a really excellent, significant achievement. Yes. So if you haven't, uh, haven't got it, I mean, it's a lot... Apart from having great stuff in it, it feels delicious, this book. It's got a lovely tactile service yeah. surface, so, uh, you know, for nothing else. It's called what, Renaissance. Renaissance, yes. yes. You know, if you want a book to stroke, <laughs> this is your book, because right. it's just lovely. <laughs> anyway, but it's also got some wonderful poetry inside as well, so congratulations to Amy. Now, the coronation is coming up, and the coronation is happening on the... 6th of May, which is the Saturday, and then we have a bank holiday on the Monday. Mm-hmm. Now, we're closed on bank holidays, and we intend to be closed that day as well. But what we thought we'd like to do uh, to uh, mark the coronation, celebrate the coronation, um, is on the Friday, so the day before the coronation on the 5th of May, we thought that we would just throw an afternoon tea uh, here at the centre for... Uh, uh, for everybody who comes to groups and, and for the volunteers. So quite a lot of people, actually, uh, potentially. Um, if you fancy coming along and having an afternoon tea, and it, in, it's not uh, not to cost anything, it'll be like a, a, you know, a gift from the charity, as it were, a celebration, um, then um, let us know. We would need to know if you'd need to use the bus as well. So give Heather a call. Um, and because yeah. Heather's got a list, Heather's got a list. <laughs> Heather she's got, has a, list. got a little list. Yes. She's got a little list, <laughs> and she'll put you on the list um, of people who may well be interested in coming. Um, and if you're interested in the bus as well, um, so it might have. So that's going to be me baking scones in the morning, and oh. all, you know, and, and other people. That's your you know, speciality, scones. It, it is one of my specialities. <laughs> yes, uh, but it soothing. <laughs> not so much. <laughs> Four o'clock in the morning, but there we are. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so um, uh, that's what we're thinking. Uh, so we'll have a bit of a celebration in the afternoon um, of, uh, of of uh, of the fifth of May, the day before the coronation. It'll push the boat out a little bit. Bring your tiara to wear. Bring your tiara. 
Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that would be great. I think as a bloke, you might prefer a crown. Well, true, true. <laughs> Mind you, these days, Nigel, you know, anybody can wear whatever they like. It's surgeon, yes, quite right. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, the the soon to be departed. Yes, Nicholas Sturgeon. That was a bit of a shock. No comment from me. No comment. Now we've got a couple of a uh, couple of events coming up at the shop. Uh, we're going to have we're going to go large in the car park um, uh, with the uh, charity shop here at the resource centre, and uh, we've got two dates booked so far. One of them is uh, on the first of April, and we're ah, calling which is a Saturday. That's a, a very dangerous date, I think. Well, <laughs> we're, call, we're calling it April Foolishness because oh, there will right. be bargains galore, right. you know. Okay. And, uh, okay. yeah, yeah, so Good. so April Foolishness. Will be on April Fool's Day, the first of April, a Saturday, uh, and uh, there'll be lots of great stuff to be had then. And then, of course, we have the Earlsden Festival, which takes place on Monday, the first of May, uh, which is the bank holiday. So we'll be going large in the car park there. It, it, it's one of it's one of the biggest sort of uh, one of the biggest um, uh, shop events of the year because we'll also have uh, the uh, a plant sale from the allotment group with all proceeds from that going to to support them in their fantastic endeavours. Um, and we may have we may well have some other stalls around as well. So uh, so that's another date for your diary. Obviously, I'll be banging on about that forever uh, until. until you know, closer to the time so uh, you know you can uh, we won't be able to supply the minibus on on the 1st of May or indeed on the on the 1st of April but um, but if you fancy coming you know we'd be delighted to see you Um, now finally um, on the 28th of March which is a bit closer I think I mentioned this last week but we have uh, we have the creative writing group appearing at the Criterion Theatre as part of the Springboard Festival which is a new festival um, organised at the Criterion uh, and there will be um, a number of actors uh, reading and performing the pieces written by the Creative Writing Group including me, I should be up there What? Actor? Actor I should be sort of <laughs> compare actor Good to you but I shall uh, yeah, step into that role um, uh, Also, uh, we're hoping that at least one of the Creative Writing Group uh, will be up there performing his own work actually, that's, uh, that's Derek so we're looking forward to having Derek up there on the stage as well um, so that's that will be a first now uh, we will be able to organise minibuses for that night. It'll be at 7.30 on the 28th, which I think is a Tuesday, um, but we'll need to know numbers. So if you're interested in that, uh, the ticket prices, I don't know what they are. It might, I think... Mm, I'll have to check, but I think it's about I think it's about ten pound fifty or something. So, but we'll see. Uh, anyway, but I'll give you a bit more information of that close to the time. Again, Heather will have a little list um, if you fancy to. Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell Heather this that <laughs> um, she will she have a little she list. She doesn't know yet. She doesn't know about her little list yet. Uh, she will have a little list, yeah. um, and um, uh, so you can sign up uh, for that if you want. So that's the creative writing um, uh, evening at. Uh, on the 28th of March at the Criterion and that I think is that for this week well plenty gone there is plenty gone yes so lot, lots of phone calls for the little listeners yes, yes. Thank, thank you Hugh ok see you next week bye bye and now it is time for sport and as usual Sarah's here to give us some interesting facts and figures about what's been going on in the sporting field Outlook Sport
Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome to Sport, which I suspect may be slightly shorter than normal. Firstly, because I haven't got the best voice, as you can probably hear. But secondly, because I went to the eye hospital yesterday and I had those lovely monkey eye drops in and my eyes is still a bit blurry today. Anyway, what I can remember that I wrote... At the weekend, Coventry City entertained Luton at the CBS. Now, unfortunately, Luton hadn't read the script because the script reads, Coventry City cannot defend long throw-ins. So they'd apparently, so rumour has it, moved the advertising boards in slightly so there wasn't so much of a space to do a run-up. And... Well, when they were awarded a throw-in after 30-odd seconds, all of the City players got ready to defend the long throw. Now, this is where Luton's naughtiness comes in, because they didn't do a long throw-in. They did a short throw-in, and apparently all of the City players seemed to stand there and watch it as it went into the goal. Coventry nil, Luton won within 45 seconds of kickoff. Fortunately, Matt Godden equalised through a penalty shortly before half time. One of the downsides was that our young player Wilson Ephraim, who we have on loan from Manchester City no less, was sent off when about halfway through the second half, possibly a bit further, he totally missed the ball and fell on the opposition striker instead and picked up his second yellow card. Still, the game finished Coventry 1, Luton 1, which from the sound of things was a pretty fair match. Now, at the same time, but in the Championship Rugby Union Cup, Coventry took on Bedford Blues and I'm afraid it was Bedford Blues who were certainly singing the blues by the end of it as they lost 33 points to 24. Now although that may seem quite close in relative terms at one stage Coventry were really ramping ahead with it and were 21-0 up So Bedford did put a bit of a rally on in the second half, but they were still left singing the blues. Okay, folks, I won't sing again. Now, we had two of our very small conference league teams who were still in the FA Vars at the opening of play on Saturday. The Vars, as I say, is the lowest of the three FA trophies. At the top, we have the Cup. Then we have the FA Trophy, then we have the FA Vars. Now, both matches went to penalties. Unfortunately, Coventry Sphinx lost out to West Bigbury in penalties. But Atherston Town, listeners note how I've extended the region we cover there to have a successful team in, won and are now in the last eight of the bars. So come on out, Atherston. Keep it up. Well done. Now, following on from what I said last week, 
I've had a bit of a geography lesson. Well, I mean, I've listened to CWR a bit closer. Now, in the Northern Premier, Leamington took off Brad took on. In fact, they travelled to Bradford Park Avenue. Unfortunately, they lost three goals to one. I'm afraid things aren't looking very good for Leamington at the moment, and that is now their 14th match without a win. Admittedly, they have drawn quite a few, but they are still hovering dreadfully near the drop zone. Now, Leamington are in the Northern Premier. But Nuneaton, who I always thought were north of Leamington, are in the Southern Premier. Got it? And they took on Stratford Town, who are definitely south. Yes, I can have that, but I'm still not quite sure about Nuneaton being classed as south. But anyway, Nuneaton won the match one goal to nil. Now, those two teams are at opposite ends of their division. Nuneaton are, I believe, third and knocking on the door of the playoffs, definitely. While Stratford are frantically trying to claw their way out of the relegation zone. Hey-ho, come on, Stratford. Come on, ye bards. You can do it. And you, Leamington. Come on, ye breaks. Now, there was a win for Racing Club Warwick. Sorry, I'm in the conference now. But Coventry travelled to Longbuckby and came away with a nil-nil draw. Hmm. Still, draws better than the loss, boys. Well done. However, pride of place goes to what happened at Butts Park on Sunday afternoon, where Coventry United women beat, yes, beat Blackburn Rovers women three goals to one hmm so on Saturday we had Cov Rugby Club winning at Butts Park and on Sunday we had Comtry United women winning at Butts Park got it Comtry City need to relocate now, a piece of national news which you can't fail to have missed if you've been watching the news is that our women in pyjamas, e.g. our ladies' cricket team or women's cricket team, are doing rather well in the T20 Cup. T20, just to give an idiot's sort of description, is basically where there are 20 overs to be bold so you're talking about 120 balls so they know how many balls they've got to hit and towards the end it gets a bit frenetic anyway the women first of all beat the windies the west indies who are a sort of hot and cold team but we destroyed them pretty much and then yesterday at time of recording we beat ireland quite handsomely now, the Irish match was a weird occasion because many of the players were waiting to see if they'd been picked up in an auction. Yes, I kid you not, they are auctioned for playing in the WPL League. 
And we're talking quite big money here. We're talking about £300,000, £80,000, whatever. And the naughty England managers wouldn't let them check their phones at half-time and at tea breaks. Ooh. Anyway, well done, women in pyjamas. Let's see more of it. Now, one final piece before I do me and finally spot. Emma Raducanu has been given a wild card to Indian Wells. Now, Indian Wells, particularly in non-Olympics year, is considered to be the fifth Masters tournament. And as you will also know if you listen to this, I'm not a huge fan of Ms. Raducanu because I think she sold herself out when she, when she won in America to loads of sponsorship deals, etc., etc. But well done, Emma. Well, at least you'll pick up first round losers' money, if nothing else. Now, I'm going to finish my and finally... I had never considered that skateboarding was a sport. Skateboarding was something that kids did up the memmy, as my mum used to call the War Memorial Park. Long story. And even less did I consider it a sport when I found out that the world champion is 14. Weird sport, that, if you mature at 14. Anyway, I had my mind change for me when I found out that that 14-year-old was none less than Sky Brown, who, though living in America and speaking with an American accent, is actually British and competes for Great Britain. And by winning the World Championship 2023, she has qualified automatically for the Olympics 2024. So well done, Sky. And I'll have no more of that drivel about skateboarding not being a true sport. Of course it is, because our world champion is British. Right, and that was your sport. And thanks to my voice for holding out. Bye. As ever, Sarah, thank you very much for sport. This is Postback. Join in the discussion. Hello and welcome to your own spot on Outlook, Postback. Thank you for your messages of sympathy regarding the loss of my lovely wife, Sheila. You may have noticed in some post bags that there was the sound of air going in and out of the pressure-relieving mattress in a hospital bed downstairs. One of Julia's reports made a laugh, which was a delight to hear. Here's another report from her. It's called In the Torchlight. I went with Jen to Torch, a Christian club. Nigel was the speaker, but there were lots of people who were ill, and we all talked about Jesus. But I wasn't listening. My friend Jen doesn't understand Jesus, so she couldn't tell me. And my friend, John is a heathen, so nobody knows what happened. I sat with my friends Gloria and Caroline, and there was a quiz, but I didn't know what it was about, so that's another mystery. But, and here's the important bit, we had a lovely cup of tea and pineapple on a stick, and Rice Krispies covered with chocolate and icing cakes with cherries on top. 
uh, Katie was there with her mum and she told me about a holiday in Hong Kong. She teaches yoga and she's got a new bracelet. Katie's got family in Hong Kong, but I don't think she speaks Chinese. We had a good old chinwag about the weather, but she didn't get the suntan until she got home. I don't want to go there because I don't want to speak Chinese. Julia. Well, Julia, here's a bit of Chinese. Ni hao, meaning hello. And I'm pleased to say that one of your reports has got a response from Graham Whale. It was interesting to hear Julia's piece about getting people to announce themselves as they go into the Monday Club. Um, this sort of thing is quite standard practice when a group of visually impaired people get together. We certainly, at the Federation meetings, both locally and nationally, always go around the room for people to announce themselves in the, in the case of a national meeting, announce which branch they're from. And if I ever go to a council meeting or some sort of gathering with sighted people, I always encourage them to go around the table and announce who they are and what organisation they're representing, because we don't know that. We can't see them. We don't even know who's in the room. So it's always a good idea. There is a difference, I think, between a formal meeting and the sort of um, drop-in, Monday drop-in, uh, Monday club type of meeting, which is, a, which is very much a casual affair. I suppose you could have liked, uh, compare that to walking into a pub. I mean, we don't expect everybody to announce themselves when we, when we go into a pub, um, though it's probably a good idea. <laughs> Far too many of them to do that. But um, no, it's, uh, it's interesting. As I say, it is quite standard practice when there is a room, when you're in a room with a lot of other visually impaired people. Thank you, Graham. The Torch Fellowship that Julia belongs to and meets at the Earlston Methodist Church once a month starts off with a microphone being passed round with people introducing themselves and maybe answering a simple question like, what's the most unusual Christmas present you received? Well, they did when I went anyway. Uh, Graham goes on to answer a simple question about a favourite book you've read and how you read it. Dave Monk's asked uh, what we read these days, what method we read. Um, I'm still an avid uh, Braille reader in spite of the problems with the Braille library at the moment. People who know who use the library will know that a couple of years ago they decided that uh, it's too expensive keeping a warehouse full of Braille books when some of them have not been borrowed probably more than once or twice in their life. So they've moved to this throwaway system whereby um, they've found a format whereby they can produce the Braille book, send it to us, and we can throw it away. And since they've come up with this, I've had nothing but problems. First, first of all, waiting two days for a new book suddenly went to two weeks uh, that is beginning to get a little bit better now, but I'm constantly finding volumes missing. Uh, a book of a couple of weeks back I had was um, uh, missing a volume six, but they made up for it by giving me two volume fours. That's the sort of mistake they're making. Um, because a lot of people now are reading digital displays, Braille, Braille on digital displays. I can't be done with that. There's nothing to beat having a book on your lap, I don't think. Thank you, Graham. 
for your input this week. I really need it. It made compiling postbags so much easier, along with Julia's. This week, though, Edwina writes, I am so sorry and so saddened at the bad news that Darren came to tell me last night. I was in such shock. I do feel for you in your immense loss of dear Sheila. She was so special to everyone. It is sad, but also a release from suffering for Sheila. She has been very brave in her months of such suffering after her stroke. Always so positive for love and positivity, rubbed off on not just you, but everyone. I felt a special affection for her, an admiration at her patience and understanding. She will be missed by many. Darren and I are thinking about you. My thoughts are with you constantly. I send love and positive vibes to you, David. Bless. Sheila is at peace in the promised land, Edwina. Thank you, Edwina, that was lovely. And for all your messages of condolence, but also think about Graham, because he has taken the loss of his mum quite very hard. Thank you. Uh, and finally, I'd like to end this week's postbag with a lovely voice and message on Outlook from Sheila, a philosophy that Sheila lived by. Outlook on life. This is a prayer I read in the Wiking Church magazine. Lord, thank you for another day within this life of mine. Give me the strength to live it well, whatever I may find. Bestow from your abundance whatever I may lack. To use the hours wisely, for I cannot have them back. Lord, thank you for another day in which to make amends for little slights or petty words inflicted on my friends, for sometimes losing patience with problems that I find, for seeing faults in other lives but not the ones in mine. Lord, thank you for another chance in which to try to be little more deserving of the gifts you've given to me, for yesterday is over and tomorrow is far away, and I remain committed to the good I do today. Thank you, messages this week. Please let's hear from you next time. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Well, thanks, Dave, there for the weekly Postbag. You probably don't realise, but it's one of our features which is uh, rarely found in other talking newspapers, to have a post bag where listeners can air their views and send a message to one another, uh, ask for advice, or just have a chat. So please do use it. And now to Margaret. Uh, This week, talking about National Westminster Bag in Broadgate, which had those imposing pillars, if you remember. Designed by F.C.R. Palmer, and WFC Holden, 
and built in 1929. This is the only original building to survive pre-war Broadgate. Amazingly, it, Lloyds Bank, the old post office and Ford's Hospital were threatened with demolition in 1941 as Gibson planned a new road from Broadgate to the station. Built initially as the National Provincial Bank, it consists of a banking hall, offices and shops. It has a grand Roman portico decorated with coins and with four Doric columns facing Broadgate and sweeps around the corner with Greek columns in Hartford Street. Built in red brick Flemish bond and Portland stone, the lines of this building were ruined when Broadgate House was extended to it, blocking the original view. The bank has stainless steel doors decorated with images of ancient Greek coins. The exceptions are the lion and crown taken from British coins, St George and the Dragon, and the hen and chick from an Irish penny. The coins' designs are based on ones held in the British Museum. The doors were designed by WFC Holden and were made by the Birmingham Guild, whose employee, Mr Pearson, hammered out all the designs by hand. Inside, the body of the banking hall remains relatively unchanged, with its geometrically glazed large glass lantern and green-clad marble walls. You'll also remember that last month Stella told you about January uh, customs, old and new. Now, with a newish month, uh, we're halfway through it, I suppose, aren't we? Stella has again investigated and written about what makes February interesting. February's moods can vary considerably. If the weather has been relatively gentle up until then, and we imagine that we're out of the woods and heading quietly towards spring, this month may prove that it has a few nasty tricks up its sleeve. One February day in the late 1960s, when I worked in the old central library, I remember going to lunch at my grandmother's after working in the morning planning to return for an evening shift at five o'clock. At 1pm, it was a mild, innocuous, dry day. By the time I left at 4.30, a foot of snow had silently fallen, obscuring the world so that you couldn't tell where the pavements ended and the road began. The central library became a base camp for stranded children, dressed in unsuitable shoes. They dried themselves out on the radiators, and in those far-off days before mobile phones, we rang a few anxious parents, as well as the families of adults who had abandoned their cars and were walking home. Let's hope that this year, February surprises us with its sunny manners and colourful harvest of those most welcome early flowering bulbs. Every year, regardless of the weather, the path from my front door to the gate is lined with a white sea of snowdrops that greet me going out and welcome me back home. These fair maids of February, as they're sometimes known, look so delicate, but are in fact incredibly tough, pushing up through frozen soil, recovering quickly if bowed down by bad weather. 
One year I was horrified when some workmen stacked their supplies on top of the green shoots. I got the stuff removed and thought, well, that's it for this year. But no, the plants soon rallied and flowered as usual. The blooms last a long time because they close up at night, trapping warmth from the daylight hours. Snowdrops are a woodland plant and need to be near hedges or walls rather than in open ground. Crocuses, though, are a different matter. A friend of mine once received 100 bulbs as a birthday present from her son and spent ages in the autumn painstakingly planting them, mostly in her lawn, using the largest of knitting needles to make the holes. Gold, blue, cream. They made a wonderful outdoor February carpet. February has, of course, been shortchanged as far as days go. And that's why every fourth year, when there's an extra day to be fitted into the calendar, February gets it. Unlucky the child born on February the 29th, who has to make do with approximate birthdays three quarters of the time. The hero of Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta, Pirates of Penzance, for instance, is told that the official end of his apprenticeship will be after 84 years of his life, when he has had 21 actual birthdays. The extra day is added because one year, i.e. the time it takes the Earth to go round the sun, equals 365 and one quarter days. So why is every fourth year its date divisible by four with its 366 days known as a leap year. Well, in ordinary years, a date in the month which falls on, say, a Monday, will fall on a Tuesday the next year, whereas in a leap year, that date will leap over two days and fall on a Wednesday. But enough of the mathematics. Traditionally, a woman can propose marriage during a leap year, and if she's turned down, may claim a silken gown or according to an old Scottish law, the sum of one pound. That was in 1288, so taking into account inflation, St Valentine's Day, the 14th of February, might be a suitable time for a lady to make her preference known. The custom of sending cards has nothing to do with either of the saints who share this day, but dates back to Roman times when lovers exchange gifts during a festival celebrating the founding of Rome. It's also associated with the time of year when birds are choosing their mates. Valentines are often unsigned and can be intriguing. The only trouble being that if you remain too incognito, how is your chosen one supposed to know your interest? A colleague of mine got into trouble one year when she rang her boyfriend Gary to thank him for the wonderful bouquet from G, only to discover that he hadn't actually sent it. Those Romans get in everywhere. Thinking back to the word February, it comes from their word februam, a time of purification, and in the Christian era this became the season of Lent a time of fasting leading up to Easter 40 days later. Lent simply means lengthening, 
the longer days signifying the coming of spring. Just before Lent, we have Shrove Tuesday, this year on February the 21st. Shrove meant that people had been shriven, i.e. granted absolution after confession and could now make merry before the fast of Lent began. A pancake bell was sounded as a signal for villagers to cease work and begin the revelry, which included the making and eating of pancakes, a tradition we still of course observe. The ingredients include eggs, symbol of creation, flour, the stuff of life, salt, meaning wholesomeness, and milk, purity. A pancake day race is still held every year in the village of Olney, Buckinghamshire. But I'd never compete. I'm hopeless at tossing. The first day of Lent, Ash Wednesday, is so called because on that day, the consecrated ashes of palms, saved from Palm Sunday in the previous year, were sprinkled on the heads of Roman Catholic penitents. Nowadays we talk of Lent as a time to give something up, going on a sugar or a smoking fast maybe, perhaps in order to resurrect one of those New Year resolutions which didn't quite work out. I intend to do less loafing and more exercise in the future, so wish me luck. It always surprises me that, for example, the first messages to and from America were transmitted by a cable running thousands of miles under the Atlantic Ocean. Well, the cables are still there, of course, but now technology has brought us satellites. And Sheila reads this article from the Sunday Times called Undersea Cables and the Internet. On Saturday, January the 15th, the world lost contact with an entire nation. Most of Tonga's communications come through a 515-mile undersea cable that connects it with Fiji and the rest of the world. But when the Hunga Tonga volcano erupted, the resulting tsunami snapped the artery 23 miles from shore. More than 100,000 people had their telephone and internet contacts severed. It took five days for telephone lines to be re-established, and restoring full internet access took weeks. The idea of losing contact with an entire nation seems unthinkable, yet January's earthquake exposed how reliant the world is on cables. About 97% of the world's internet is transmitted via a million mile network of wires under the sea. Just a tiny sliver comes via satellite. The cloud is under the sea, not in the sky, says Dr Michael Clare at the National Oceanography Centre. Britain is no exception, a fact we were reminded of recently when thousands of residents in the Shetland Arms were left without broadband or mobile phone coverage. This was bad luck. The key link with the Scottish mainland snapped while the second cable to Norway via the Faroe Islands was being repaired from a break the previous week. Officials believe these breakages were caused by overzealous fishing rather than Russian espionage. However, a Russian survey ship was spotted north of Orkney the day after the cables were cut. In understanding how Britain is tethered to the rest of the world, we can also understand where we are vulnerable. The first telegraph was sent in 1844, but transmitting signals from Britain to Europe was an obvious challenge. 
On Wednesday, August 28, 1850, the paddle steamer Goliath set out from Dover with a coiled-up cable. It was thin, a single copper wire coated in an early type of plastic, and it had to be weighed down every 100 yards with lead weights. That evening, the ship reached France, but when experts tried to send signals, the line was dead. A newspaper report claimed a French fisherman had accidentally hauled the cable in with his catch. The first example of a row about how to protect underwater cables, which continues today. A subsequent attempt was successful, and attention turned to crossing the Atlantic. Tougher cable was needed, one with seven copper wires and thicker insulation, and a lot more of it. Two ships were used, the HMS Agamemnon and the USS Niagara, which set sail from the west coast of Ireland in 1857. The cable broke twice, the second time at a depth of 3,200 metres in the middle of the ocean. The attempt was abandoned. A new attempt was made the following year. This time, the two ships sailed to the middle of the Atlantic, tied their cables together and then went their respective ways. The first official telegram was passed between the two continents on August 16, 1858 in which Queen Victoria congratulated President James Buchanan on the successful collaboration. The cable broke within a year, but was relayed in 1866. By the end of the century, all continents were connected. Telegraph cables quickly became essential, and so when Britain and Germany declared war in 1914, the Royal Navy immediately snipped Germany's transatlantic cables. This included a crucial one that ran from the island of Borkum, northwest Germany, through the channel to Tenerife. Today, 1.1 million miles of cable span the world's oceans, enough to reach the moon and back twice. In the internet age, every millisecond is money, so sending signals across the ocean floor is done by the shortest route possible where terrain allows. For this reason, they tend to follow the paths that first laid down a hundred years ago. Some 25% of the world's internet is estimated to throw through Cornwall, where GCHQ Bude is a key station. A Google cable, which started operating this year, runs here from New York. Modern internet cables are much sturdier than the old telegraph cables, surrounded by steel wire, several layers of insulation and a plastic coating but they are not immune to damage. There are more than 100 undersea cable breaks each year. Most are caused by ships that fish or drop anchor where they shouldn't. Until recently, around 0.5% of faults were caused by fish fights, while whale entanglement caused 16 cable failures before 1959. Geological movements such as the volcano in Tonga are rare, but can be catastrophic. In 2006, an earthquake south of Taiwan caused an underwater landslide that damaged six of the seven cables connecting North America with the Far East and knocking out 80% of Hong Kong's internet. It took 11 ships 49 days to repair it. I'm sure many of you will have noticed changes at the BBC as it moves to chase a mythical younger audience and ditches established star presenters. They're now joining the myriad of new digital stations which are springing up and attracting big audiences, and so making the over-50s at last feel they have a radio home again. 
Sue reads this first part of Zoom Radio, written by Cat Hoops. When Diddy David Hamilton and Pete Murray appeared on their Boom Radio Christmas special on Boxing Day, the veteran broadcasters had a combined age of 181 and many decades of experience behind them. But becoming the oldest radio duo in history, while a nice footnote for the record books, is very much par for the course for Boom, which has carved out an enviable talent roster and listener base in less than two years. Veteran producers David Lloyd and Phil Riley launched the station firmly aimed at the over-fifties with modest ambitions. The original plan was to carry it on digital radio in London first and if that worked then we would think about rolling it out nationally, says David, 61. After two weeks of turning it on the feedback was so huge we had a top-level meeting very quickly and said to the shareholders look we need to go national and we need to go national now. Fast forward to today and boom is, well, booming. Officially Britain's fastest growing radio station with 443,000 listeners, it's also rapidly becoming a home for established, read older, DJs looking to return to their roots. Paul O'Grady, 67, is its latest star signing, confirmed for Boom's Christmas Day show after 13 years at the BBC. The much-loved broadcaster quit his weekly Radio 2 Sunday programme in August after it was announced he would share his slot with comedian Rob Beckett, 36. His move comes alongside other high-profile departures, Steve Wright, 68, Vanessa Feltz, 60, and Simon Mayo, 64, from the National Broadcaster. Some have left of their own accord, others have been bumped, as the BBC chases, critics claim, a mythical younger audience, seemingly at the expense of older listeners. The mass exodus of talent has clearly come at a cost. More than 108,000 over-50s deserted Radio 2 during the last quarter, as an extra 42,000 tuned into Boom, according to the most recent figures. All of which is good news for newcomers like Boom. David and Phil are, of course, delighted. The policy of Boom is to provide a great radio station for disillusioned Radio 2 listeners, declares David while Phil believes O'Grady could prove a record-breaker. If he can bring even a small percentage of his Radio 2 audience across, we'll be very happy, he says. In anticipation, the pair have already had their technical team working overtime to ensure their streaming system can cope with a major audience boost. Boom already boasts multiple radio legends whose average age is 60. There's David Hamilton, 84, Nicky Horn, 72, Esther Ramson, 82, Graham Dean, 73, and Jenny Hanley, 75. At 69, Judy Spires, of whom more shortly, is a relative spring chicken. 
So apart from amassing decades of broadcasting experience and some famous names, what is it that Boom is getting right? David says its listeners are treated as equals by presenters who are the same age but also feel young at heart. Our listeners know who Harold Wilson was. They remember entering the common market and mail order catalogues, he smiles. Whatever you're talking about, we know our cultural references. The jokes are the same. For our audience, it's like walking into a pub and gravitating to a table of old friends who can talk their language. That's what people feel when they listen to us. David Hamilton, who broadcasts shows from his comfortable Sussex farmhouse with his cocker spaniel Amber at his feet, agrees. The other thing is that we play a really golden age of music, he says, in his familiar dulcet tones. Everything the Beatles recorded was in the 1960s. It's the best era of the Rolling Stones and probably the best for Motown. They're three types of music that have lasted a long time. Critically, Boom has access to more than 10,000 records. Lots of other stations play the same records over and over again, Hamilton says. They have a narrow playlist because they've had these records researched and they feel that they're safe. He began his radio broadcasting career in 1959 with the British Forces Network in Cologne during his national service and went on to work for the BBC for 20 years until he left for commercial radio in 1987. You'd struggle to find anyone who doesn't know David Hamilton among our generation because he was on Radio 1 and Radio 2 at the same time, David Lloyd says. Everybody listened to him. He probably thought he was never going to be on the radio again, certainly not nationally. When we told him he could be on air from his attic, both he and his wife were utterly delighted. Certainly his wife Drina says this has changed David's life. And so we'll complete the Zoom radio story next week. Have you tuned to one or more of these uh, new stations uh, with their well-known and loved presenters? Tell us all about it in postback. Now, lambing season will start next month in March, but my local farmer tells me it won't be a great year for twins, as the ewes suffered in the sweltering heat of last summer and weren't in the finest form for the mating season. Talking of lambs, uh, you may remember some time ago, Dave talked to Jessica, who's a former shepherdess and wool grower, and originally farmed on the South Downs. Well, he's caught up with her again and had another chat. Well, I moved from Devon, sadly. I have gone to Yeovil now because Yeovil. I simply got too old to farm. Okay, well, that's fair enough. Yes, you yeah. need to know when to give up. I would think that lambing sheep uh, requires you uh, a lot of hard work. Well, it's enormously physical, and uh, my South Downs are a breed of sheep, and we, we laugh about it. We say they are too posh to push. So when it comes to lambing, you essentially need to intervene on every single lambing, whereas other breeds will just get on with it. Not my girls. No, no, they needed help. So bear in mind when you 
you've got a heavily, heavily pregnant you with twins, she could weigh anything from 30 to 40 kilos more than me. And then I have to get her down to help her um, and keep her down while I'm doing the intervention. Yes. And obviously my youth knew me very well and they knew I was going to help them, not hurt them. But in the heat of the moment and the pushing and the straining, you still get kicked in the face, you know, or you get rolled on, or, you know, and I was coming away with a number of bruises and nicks and cuts and injuries, yeah. not through any malicious nature of my sheep, just, just the, the nature of what I'm doing. And, you know, 10 years ago, I healed quickly. But when you're in your 60s, suddenly the bruises don't heal quite as quickly. No, they don't, no. And so I thought, no, I need to, I really need to um, call this a day now. But, you know, once you lamb a you, there's a bond. And you get to know her, she mm. gets to know you. And you take it from there. You know, it, just, it, was, it was an incredible experience. Yes, wow. I mean, for instance, when, when you get a herd of sheep, to, to most of us, they all look the same, but uh, they actually uh, walk alongside their relations, apparently, according to your, your uh, Oh, absolutely. absolutely. All my sheep had names. They all had different characters. I knew every single one of them. Um, and, they, you know, they were the mischief makers and they were the placid ones. And, interestingly, within the flock... They formed very strong bonds and friendship, so you will always find two or three, three of them together somewhere, and you know they're good pals. That's good, excellent. <laughs> I understand, talking of pals, I understand one of your sheepdog and an Italian ma mountain dog was actually friends with a big uh, male sheep, is that right? He was, he was friends with all of them, but he loved my big Ryland uh, weather called uh, Bill. Yeah. And they used to hang out together often. You'd see them sitting around together. But a, a very funny story. I had all the ewes in the barn. Um, and, of course, Calvin Marema was wandering amongst them. Yeah. And he forgot his manners. And by accident, he cocked his leg on a ewe. Yeah. Well, she was absolutely furious. And she stamped her feet at him and she told him exactly what she thought of that. <laughs> and he sort of got very embarrassed and sort of said, Oh, sorry, 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 I thought you were a tree, you know. And he wandered off. But right from um, the get go, when I got Cal as a nine week old puppy, yeah. I put him in with them. Um, and he got to know, he was so gentle with them. He was absolutely fantastic. And, and that was a whole layer of sort of cross-species relationships that I could watch evolve, which is just incredible. Yes. So what special characteristics does, does Cal have? Cal is oh, very interesting. I mean, you cannot train him. They mm. are totally independent. Their bloodline goes back to... Uh, ancient Roman times in, in Italy because they were Italian and they are protectors and today they will still be sent out maybe a, a family group of four or five of them with the sheep into the, the wilderness because there's no fencing in Italy or whatever those sheep are just wandering the fields and the hills 
and they will look after the flock for up to four or five days completely on their own. No wow. human intervention. Wonderful, that's... So they are protectors, and they will not allow anyone near those sheep. Yes. But the downside is, of course, there's no recall, there's no obedience with cattle. It's not like a sort of companion dog uh, or a, a sort of Labrador working dog where they are trained particularly to do tasks. No, no, no. Cow will decide whether he wants to do something or not. <laughs> Which makes taking him for a walk extremely interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah. Um, fantastic story recently on Facebook. There was a picture of one of these dogs in America patiently waiting at the vet to be patched up. And the story was he was on a farm, a sheep farm in, in the U.S., and a pack of 11 coyote came to attack the sheep. Yes. And Solo, not only did he see them off, he killed eight of these coyotes. Wow. That and there he was, so the vet, obviously he, he, he got into a terrible scrap with them, yes. and he was being patched up. Yeah. And this is their kind of instinct. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I had Cal, but I yeah. also then had a traditional colleague, Max. Yes, yes. Who knew at least 40 commands, and I could just take him quietly yeah. into the field and say, Max, come by. And oh, off you go, round sheep, <laughs> you know, clockwise, and start bringing them to me. Okay, um, so is come by right come or by, left? Come by clockwise. Clockwise, clockwise. Away okay. is anti-clockwise. Anti I had a problem because I'm one of these silly people who don't know my left from my right. <laughs> when I was training, Max, my hand would be saying, come by. My voice would be saying, away. Yeah. Uh, Max would sit in the field looking puzzled to say, mother, please make up your mind what you want me to do. Okay, yeah. um, and, and the reason why we use hand signs with these colleagues is because as they get older they can go deaf in which case yes. they can't hear you in a field yeah. but they can see your, your hand commands yes I see yes but incredible he just he knew exactly yeah. he, he would actually preempt what I needed to do sometimes he knew exactly what was what absolutely fantastic I understand Max likes to herd sorts of chickens and, and and also young children. Max would herd anything that was walking. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> fantastic. It was. It was incredible. Um, and, and the chickens were incredibly tolerant. So it, so it, they knew he wasn't going to hurt them. Um, but they just would say, oh, God, here comes the collie again. All right, what does he want us to do? <laughs> and Dave will conclude that chat with Jessica next week and to end this week's edition of Outlook we're going to have some poetry from Margaret and this poem is An Arundel Tomb written by our own Philip Larkin Side by side their faces blurred the Earl and Countess lie in stone their proper habits vaguely shown as jointed armour stiffened pleat and that faint hint of the absurd, the little dogs under their feet. Such plainness of the pre-baroque hardly involves the eye, until it meets his left-hand gauntlet, still clasped empty in the other, 
and one sees, with a sharp, tender shock, his hand withdrawn, holding her hand. They would not think to lie so long. Such faithfulness in effigy was such a detail friends would see. A sculptor's sweet commissioned grace thrown off in helping to prolong the Latin names around the base. They would not guess how early in their supine stationary voyage the air would change the soundless damage, turn the old tenantry away, how soon succeeding eyes begin to look, not read. Rigidly they persisted, linked, through lengths and breadths of time. Snow fell undated. Light each summer thronged the glass. A bright litter of bird calls strewed the same bone-riddled ground, and at the paths the endless altered people came, washing at their identity, now helpless in the hollow of an unarmorial age. A trough of smoke in slow suspended skeins above their scrap of history, only an attitude remains. Time has transfigured them into untruth. The stone fidelity they hardly meant has come to be their final blazon and to prove our almost instinct, almost true, what will survive of us is love. So that's it uh, for another week. We'll be back next week. And so with that, it's goodbye from me, Nigel Hewin.